Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. I've been playing around with what the right framing is for this particular episode. I know what issues I want to explore with you and with my guests. And there are myriad issues because of the crises in the country currently. But I suppose, given what is going on globally at the moment, I settled for one particular headline framing, although there will be many issues that we will drill down into. And the question at the top line for me is, is Sri Lanka a warning to the ANC government? Of course, in South Africa, it is a year since the July riots last year that broke out several several parts of the country, but in particular in KwaZulu-Natal and in Gauteng, and it's an opportunity to take stock. Has justice been meted out against the perpetrators? Do we truly know what actually happened as a matter of factual record? And crucially, keeping in mind the Sri Lanka analogy, what are the prospects of the July riots 2.0 recurring? And under what conditions and what might that portend for our democracy? Two of my guests who are joining me are two of my colleagues at Arena Holdings, and they're two of the country's top investigative journalists based at the Sunday Times Dandutologica, as well as Sabeloskiti. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people zone, their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they share that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Guys, thanks so much for being um, on this particular edition of the show. I uh, really appreciate your coming on. Uh, great to be um, Thanks, Eusebius, um, and good afternoon. I want to start with you, Tolo. You know, I had a conversation with a, another media colleague of ours, Joanne Joseph, about something slightly adjacent to what we are going to talk about. She made the point, which an historian made to her, that when we talk about politics and history as men, we tend, in particular as men, to talk about big institutional issues rather than about the minutiae and the micro-level stories. And without being too gendered about it, it's more likely that women reporters, women writers, and historians will pay attention to the individual lives and not just to ask questions about institutions. But what I loved about your coverage, uh, Tando Tolo and the rest of the team all over the weekend in the Sunday Times, is that you centered the stories of how the July riots affected very specific individuals. Mm-hmm. Tell us about some of those individuals mm-hmm. and let's talk about their stories without rushing to the big picture. 
Yeah, I'll t- uh, for me, Eusebius, uh, you know, uh, as we were uh, dealing with the um, uh, riots um, um, uh, edition and the investigation, um, it, it, it crossed my mind uh, once again, uh, which is, you know, another form of journalism that I quite uh, enjoy doing instead of actually taking the top-down approach. You know, um, it's better to individualize stories for me, um, you know, tell the human uh, impact, um, you know, to tell uh, a a bigger story. Because, I mean, where we tend to miss it as well, uh, people, um, you know, tend to be used as just statistics. Um, And that dehumanizes us uh, to such um, an extent that we become insensitive um and um, 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 um for lack of a better word forget uh, the pain um that you know all these political str- um, struggles uh and big talk about war uh and all those type of things how they actually impact individual human beings. And for me, July um, um, 2021 represented uh, that kind of, uh, of pain. And we needed to, you know, tell it from um, a people's perspective, people that were affected by the July riots. You know, there's uh, this excitement, uh, you know, from uh, several quarters where, you know, people... Uh, pride themselves in the fact that, you know, that they managed to shut down the country or KZN and uh, parts of Gauteng. Um, uh, they showed ANC government or factions within the ANC showed each other, you know, what can actually happen. And um, it was some kind of a test that um, can they do this successfully. So for me, telling the stories, um of the people on the ground that were affected uh, by these big eagles uh, was more important. I mean, we had 199 people killed in KZN. So I set out to find the families, you know, be it that people were uh, actively looting or attempting to loot, um, or it was just, you know, Simpiwe Mkwanazi, a passerby who was walking by. At at, at the age of 16, his leg had to be amputated. Um, You know, he was a promising soccer star. Uh, His family is struggling. They just have a spaza shop running there. And, uh, you know, speaking to his mother, uh, Tokozi, you know, she had um, hopes uh, and dreams that, you know, uh, Simpi would be able uh, to have a better future than he has had, you know, growing up um, and, 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 uh, and be able to look after the family and look after himself. But that dream was actually um, taken away uh, on the night of July 12th uh, when uh, members of the community uh, in Inanda tried to loot uh, a, a, a cash and carry store called Mamba Cash and Carry. Um, and as I understand that night, uh, you know, security guards who were guarding that place uh, were blockaded the road, uh, just opened fire on, on, on people and a number of people were killed there. So I used that particular place 
to go and look for the other families, you know, that lost their loved ones there. You know what I found particularly heartbreaking about that story is that this wasn't a youngster that was looting, that was errant, that was being antisocial. The mom, as you write the story in the Sunday Times, had actually sent him there to go and top up a machine or a device that goes into the input of her little entrepreneurial setup that she had. And that for me makes it even more heartbreaking because the flash machine that she needed topping up is a flash machine that brings in the meager salary with which she was hoping to support her young boy's dream of playing soccer. Absolutely. You know, um, and uh, uh, for me, that story, you know, uh, uh, struck me so much because now it's his, you know, because people had um, um, had this thing that, you know, uh, people deserved to die, you know, they were looting, etc. Um, but they were innocent bystanders, people who were not looting like Simpiwe, you know, um, and there's nothing in that family, they they struggling. Um, and Simpiwe was their hope, and there's nothing now, you know, uh, to for his future so we needed to tell those that kind of impact of the of the riots uh, of, of the looting of the chaos that took place um even for those uh families you know who lost um i mean uh the guy called Sife Kotelani was also shot there shot in the head shot in Absolutely. the head um you know we spoke to the mother they had to sit with the body of Sife uh, mm-hmm. for hours uh, because the mortuary events were not coming to pick them up. And even though... I found it, it absolutely shocking, absolutely shocking. Yeah. The quote, Sabello, that Tandutolo includes in his story, I want to read it. And even as an investigative journalist who deals with the dark underbelly of society, tell me what comes up for you just at the level of effect when you listen to this quote from Sichle's mom. It's like they killed stray dogs on that night at Mamba because no one is being held responsible for the death of my son. The police have been quiet since we buried Sichle on July 20 last year. They shot him in the head and I want justice and to know if my child was a threat to any of those guards. He was not found with any goods and that store was not broken into. So why did they kill him? His younger brother and their father had to go and look for his body after they were called and told that Sijle was shot dead. They were then forced to come back here with him and I had to watch his lifeless body just lying there. Imagine watching your son dead with a bullet hole in his forehead. You're not just a journalist. You're also a dad. It's very hard to listen to this kind of reportage without connecting to the story, because this could have been ourselves or anyone with proximity to us. We've got family in townships, and we don't live single narrative lives in Joburg. When you hear that passage from Tanutolo's story, Sabelo, what comes up for you, both at a human level and journalistically? Um, you know, even now it's like actually, <clears throat> it's still hitting. Um, but I mean, you see this. Um, it's such a harrowing thing to even just consider. You know, if, 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 if you've, you lose a loved one, 
um, you know, even in what we would maybe call sort of um, normal or ordinary circumstances where, you know, you've maybe followed his ailing health or you know exactly what happened if it was like an accident or whatever. You still left with so many questions um, about, you know, how this could have been avoided, you know, what that individual's last moments are, just like as a human being. You know, someone that you care about, that you've lost, you think about, you know, did they struggle? Was there pain? Um, you know, were they cold? You know, you even think about, you know, things like that. Now, imagine you're sitting in a room and, you know, this young man, you know, his body is there and maybe the blood is still sort of pouring out of him. Um, and you can see the damage that's been done physically to his body. Um, it's not anything that any human being you know, or to experience. I mean, Eusebius, if you talk about the, the level of trauma, I would probably say that the only other people that experience that sort of trauma are people who've lived through wars. Um, you know, um, it, it is something that just, it, it moved me. I mean, it moves me now as you read it. Um, and I mean, this is the one thing that I think sometimes never really comes across um, in a lot of the type of journalism that we do, especially investigative stuff, you know, where a lot of the times you're looking for evidence, you're looking for smoking guns, you know, you're pouring over documents. Um, but one of the reasons that I still love journalism and I still want to do journalism is the fact that every once in a while you will go out um, of your comfort zone, you leave your family you know, your mind will be in another, I mean, Tangola will tell you the sort of mindset that you're in um, to be able to process stories such as these um, for up to three or four or five days in a row. Um, this is what you you go to sleep thinking about. It's what you wake up thinking about. Um, just sort of like framing the story and sort of understanding, you know, and, and, and telling it in such a way that it, it doesn't really get, you know, for lack of a better phrase, cheapened by the pain. Um, so that, you know, the pain can still make sense um, to someone who reads it. Um, it, it. It's absolutely tragic. And you're quite correct. This is something that I always think about, you know, as being sort of like a young black journalist um, in South Africa at this time is, you know, how much we actually don't think about how the stories that we tell affect us. You know, even a, a simple corruption story, you know, could be your relative. Um, or, you know, the people that are insulting you for telling that story, um, you know, are evoking your own sort of poverty and experiences that you've experienced living in a village or a township, you know. Um, it's that for me. It's like, you know, when whenever I'm home, I mean, I don't know if I've ever told you. So my parents, you know, we lived in, in, in urban and then after they retired, they went and yeah. go back to the village. Um, and whenever I'm there, it's the same thing. And, and I'm not romanticizing it, but it's like, you always ask yourself, like, why do people have to live with so much difficulty? Um, something as 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 as, yes. as sort of like waiting for a, a mortal event that's not coming. Absolutely. You know, for other people, this is something that would never, they would never count it yeah. as, you know, but it's an everyday thing if you talk to, you know, the poor in townships. Well, I think it, it indicts us collectively because those of us who don't experience it can nonchalantly mouth rights in the Constitution, such as the right to dignity, which is the preeminent constitutional value, but it's not animated for the persons that don't have a stake in our democracy. 
which is why another story, before we talk about the structural and institutional issues, Dr. Kolo, that I found very illuminating is, and it's curiously titled, and I think the sub-editor pulled the right quotes out of it to headline it, from a youngster who is in a wheelchair and says, I must accept the outcome of the looting. And this is an Amanzam Toti youngster explaining why he joined his friends to loot Mtokozo um, Banda. But what's interesting for me about why he had gone is that it, it didn't have any overt party political logic to it. He was very clear that the alcohol that he had looted he managed to make a lot of money and he was hoping that he would improve his life and he didn't give a damn about Jacob Zuma. So those of us who like to diagnose these events in wholly political terms, we also lose the logic of what happens at the micro level mm. because the story of Ntokozo, for me, I don't know how you read the story that mm. you wrote, Ntokolo, is a story of how the structural conditions of living under poverty extreme poverty, don't justify criminality, mm -hmm. but it certainly is an important part of the explanation, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, um, um, uh, Eusebius. Um, you know, being um, in, in, and, uh, in those townships there, um, once again, and I think I, I did, um, you know, write about it um, at some point in, in social media, that it is absolutely shocking Um the conditions that people in 2022 still live under in many of our townships uh, in South Africa. It's um, a, a ticking time bomb for me. It is a perfect uh, fertile ground uh, for any disturbance to uh, to 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 any um, uh, society and democracy. Uh, the inequalities are just um, too much. Um, the gap is is, is extreme, um, and you know, walking around and uh, driving around, in fact, uh, from one place to another in Amawoti or in White City, then uh, in Inanda, you are confronted with uh, youngsters between the ages of eighteen, um, you know, to thirty-five. Um, you know, walking around aimlessly, um, jobless, jobless. Um, and you can see that there is no plan for them at all. So when you have um, such conditions, uh, you know, um, uh, this youngster's um, explanation and uh, what he said made more sense to me. It made sense. And I, 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 I could understand what, where he, he, he was coming from, uh, because He's just there and he's faced with poverty. And here's an opportunity. People are looting. Um, yeah, I can go get uh, this amount of alcohol, whatever I can get, uh, sell, and I'm going to make money, you know. Um, and other people, um, they went, uh, you know, for food, um, etc. And once again, nobody, um, you know, says, um, this was justified. It, it is criminality. But you have to deal with the causes of such acts. You know, the conditions that people live under um, are not conducive uh, for them to think any other way. 
Yeah. Mm. Okay, so there's two or three questions I want us to end with, but they're big questions. So we'll spend about 10 minutes or so on them collectively. The first is stepping back from these individual stories. As you've said, Sabelo, if you are waiting for a van to collect the body of your dead child, you've got so many unanswered questions. 12, 13 months later, they are still unanswered. Hopefully the state had answered them by then. Doesn't seem to be the case. Alternatively, you hope that if you buy the Sunday Times, uh, Tandotolo and Sabelo will have figured out what the hell happened. Why don't we know the true facts of what actually happened? I think it's actually quite interesting in the sense that there's a couple of factors, right? Um, and I think one of the most shameful things um, about the government that we have and the leadership in the government that we have is that ever since, you know, those disastrous days in July, um, the government has done absolutely everything in its power um, to try and cover up their ineptness um, and the fact that they were complicit in those deaths, you know. Um, if you look at, you know, the posture of the police minister when you went to appear um, before, you know, I think the Human Rights Commission's um, hearings into it, um, you look at how defensive he was, right, um, and how he was sort of like passing the buck and it suddenly became about, you know, the squabbling between um, police and, you know, our, our, our domestic intelligence. Um, and then you look at even, you know, the police commissioner, um, who was, you know, apparently quite sick, but uh, managed to drive himself between Gauteng and KZN, um, you know, when he was, you know, literally on his deathbed with COVID. Um, and you look at, so one can help but sort of see that the law enforcement in KZN, KZN does seem to have been taken up um, in what could be, and I mean, I don't even want to call, uh, you know, former President Jacob Zuma's nonsense political. Because it really wasn't political. It was just like, you know, he's once again, him showing us that he doesn't give, you know, a toss about the law. So those people were then caught up in whatever that fervor that was of that moment um, of maybe wanting to show the courts and wanting to show South Africa um, that, you know, the country can be uncomfortable if they want. Um, but at the same time, it looks like there was an inability um, in these guys to just react to this thing. Um, and what's even worse for me is now the fact that there's an inability to investigate. But I find that all very depressing, Sabelo. <laughs> My apologies. I want to bring, I want to bring oh, Tandukolo in here because for, we are so good, Tandukolo, at recycling diagnostic reports. Everything Sabelo says for me is absolutely cogent, not just as an experienced investigative reporter in terms of his credentials and your own, but we've also now had not just the Human Rights Commission looking into this, but, you know, conclusions coming out of those reports that there was a whole bunch of familiar underlying factors that explain why we haven't got to the bottom of this as a state. And it has to do with the politicization of the entire criminal justice value chain. It has to do with the fact that intelligence in this country was hollowed out during the state capture years and has not been adequately repaired, and it probably needs more than repair work. It needs to be completely overhauled. The Sydney Mufamadi report itself has hardly been properly implemented, etc., etc., etc. So when you take that entire value chain of justice and see that it is broken and hasn't really recovered from the state capture years, then it's little wonder 
that we lack both the capacity and the political will in terms of the ANC-led government to take responsibility for not being able to solve such a puzzle, even though we've got wall-to-wall TV footage in real time of what's going on. Yeah, uh, I mean, you see, this, um, you know, the problem, um, and um, as uh, the president's uh, advisor um, in, 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 uh, for security, uh, Dr. Sidi Mufamari said, you know, he can't imagine, you know, that we will be able to fix um, um, the country's problems without fixing uh, the ANC problems. Uh, from what um, Dr. Mufamari was saying, um, you know, I then take it forward to say that um, we are now reaping, um, you know, the fruits of what has been an erosion of law enforcement. Uh, law enforcement, which started, um, you know, being actively involved in ANC internal politics, serving uh, different interests, um, which is why now the citizens uh, of South Africa are actually, um, you know, on their own and have no protection. Um, you know, vigilantes can uh, run around and shoot people willy-nilly, um, knowing very because they know very well that they can get away with it. There is no investigative capacity. There is no intelligence capacity because all those institutions are highly focused on ANC politics, uh, are highly politicized. So this is why, you know, we, we're getting all this chaos, chaos and criminality um, um, uh, on uh, that 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 cheap. That keeps on um, um, just cropping up and 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 and, and going. Um, so, in many ways, it it is not only the incapacity of law enforcement; it is the lack of political will and the injustice that is deliberately, um, you know, um, led to continue so that certain uh, political agendas thrive. Um, 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 in this country. Mm. Okay, I mean, that, that, that's quite interesting. Sabela, would you agree with that? Look, I mean, um, and, and I, I don't want to sort of diminish the role that politics have played, I think, in, in, in the sort of um, hollowing out of our institutions. But I think for me, at some level, we have to also look at the fact that our police are inadequately trained, you know. Um, our police, yes. never mind detecting <laughs> um, that's maybe a step too far. They can't even collect evidence correctly at a crime scene. You know, we're sitting in 2022 right now in South Africa with the murder of Senzo Mehiwa. There were five people in that house. Um, the police have not been able to get to the Crazy. bottom and mm-hmm. give us a co- coherent mm-hmm. version of what actually happened. You know, for me, and it, yeah. it was actually brought out in the trial where you've got five people that are charged with the murder there. And then it turns out that the state never even put these guys, you know, before the witnesses for an identity parade, Um, you know, as one of the steps that one would have taken to actually make sure that you can prove that X individual was in the house. You don't even put them before the five people that were there. You know, so I mean, for me, at some level, we also have to look at the fact that some of the crimes in South Africa don't get solved, not because of the politics, around it, but also just because of, I, I think we've got police officials who just simply don't care anymore and are not adequately trained, even if they do. But, but that said, Sabelo, 
Um, I want to stay with you. I, I, I don't want to make a trite point, but to some extent, the two are, of course, unmeshed. When we look at the skullduggery right within the top leadership structures of the SAPs after 1994, it's been a long time coming. The last book I read was Jeremy Vieri's book, which is a police memoir. Then I think to myself, it's little wonder that we should have so many cops unable to do the basics, as you've correctly articulated, when you have a leadership crisis and when you have the politicization of appointments right at the top. You've got turf wars, pardon the pun, not only between gangsters on the Cape Flats, but turf wars between different parts of police management and political leadership and across different provinces. If they are not paying attention and they don't accept the buck stops with them in terms of in a top-down manner making sure that the people that you and I interface with at the charge office are skilled enough to be able to do proper detective work, let alone to be able to handle minors at Maracana or go into Phoenix and do proper crowd control, um, then of course it is unsurprising that our police are inadequately skilled. But there's a link between the politics of policing and, and operational problems, I think. Um, yes. Um, and, and I mean, it starts right there, right? Um, and I just wanted to draw us back to yesterday. I mean, uh, looking at just the newspapers. So the front of the Sunday Independent um, was about exactly just that, you know, the latest installment of, you know, the days of our lives that takes place mm. um, right at the very top levels of SAPs. You know, um, the Minister of Police is once again at loggerheads with some or other, you know, divisional head within, you know, our police service. Um, and these are people that, or this is a service that gets in excess of 10 billion rand a year. You know, I sometimes listen and I hear people talk about the fact that our police are under-resourced. I think resourcing is not a, is not a problem. Um, and I think what you've just spoken about is exactly some of the issues that we deal with in the police is that there's no accountability for police, for members of the police force um, who <clears throat> don't, you know, uphold um, the standards that's required of them. You know, guys are able to drive past a pileup on the freeway, you know, police officers, um, when they know exactly what their role is supposed to be. In that, um, you've got police that, you know, will extract money from its citizens um, when they stop them on the side of the road. You know, um, you and I, if we are on the side of the road, we've got a flat. When a police car stops, we instead get worried and we take out our phones and we want to record instead of thinking that we're going to get some help here, you know. And I mean, yeah. it goes to exactly what you're saying, is that if you've got Absolutely. the head of HR, for instance, in the entire SAPS, um, having to fight off some other ridiculous charge from another g divisional head in SAPS, what are they doing then about the HR problems in SAPS? If you've got the head of finance within SAPS, you know, fighting with crime intelligence over their allocation of money, um, when are they then making sure that um, what they spend um, on, on 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 police uniform, for instance, um, is, is 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 value? You know, if if you've got all of these different divisions at war with each other and at war with the minister, yeah. uh, you know, daring the president. Um, what do you expect from the guy at the police station level? I mean, it's not rare in South Africa. You walk into a police station and you can ask for this for the station commander. Um, you will sit there for hours and the station commander simply won't be there. 
and then someone will whisper to you and say, this person doesn't really come to work. Um, <laughs> you know, outside of meetings, yeah. we don't see them. You know, who's then responsible for the running of that station? You know, we experience it here in the urban. It's worse mm-hmm. in the rural areas. I've got a last question for the three of us. And let's tackle it simultaneously. Don't wait for me to prompt you. We've spoken a lot, and appropriately so, about the security cluster inadvertently as a site of analysis to understand why we still don't quite know what happened a year ago, why there hasn't been justice for victims and survivors, and how bad that is when we link it to the politicization of policing in the country. But there's another category of factors that must come into this conversation. And Tanukolo, you and I touched on that a little bit at the beginning of the conversation. When people live under conditions of extreme poverty in a context of gross levels of inequality that are almost unmatched anywhere else in the world, an economy growing at basically 0% projected, not more than 3% for the next three years. And I'm not even talking about different kinds of inequality, asset inequality, income inequality, inequality qualitatively across different parts of our lives, like educational disparities. When we add to that unemployment of young people who have all of that energy that needs to find an outlet, being around 60%, you've got a Molotov cocktail. We've been saying that in this country for the past 10 years. We were all in our early 30s when I heard that kind of description. But we seem to take for granted that it is in the South African cultural DNA that we will always pull ourselves back from the brink. I want to ask the question pointedly. Sri Lanka at the moment is a bizarre place to watch. (laughs) (laughs) Where you have a revolution that is made for the Instagram times. And when I see people overthrowing the government, the president basically going into that palace, being in the swimming pool, I can't help but imagine people going to Palapala or the fire pool at Nkandra (coughs) and taking selfies from there and getting rid of the ANC. Can the ANC be afford to be arrogant about South Africans suffering from Stockholm Syndrome into perpetuity? Or should they look at an example like Sri Lanka, Tandukolo, and have a sober moment and recognize that all of the macroeconomic indices I've just listed means that July 2021 can happen easily again with worst outcomes? Uh, at, at this juncture, um, 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 uh, Eusebius, um, what we have uh, in South Africa, there's a bit of realization of the real threat uh, of another July 2021 happening again. Um, there's a real, there's always been a, a realization uh, of um, our socio-economic conditions being, you know, one of the worst uh, in the world uh, within the ANC. They've always known that, um, but they've always been comfortable uh, with the fact that uh, they use those conditions so that they can stay in in, 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 in in power. Those who want to exact change and actually um, um, do something different um, are seemingly in the minority within the ruling party. Um, 
for me, it has taken so many years uh, for us to get to this moment, but it, 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 it was coming. And I feel that some of the ANC leaders have actually never cared. Uh, you would see it from how state uh, capture came, uh, came about. Uh, you would see it in the uh, level of uh, the growth of uh, politically connected uh, people in terms of only them being rich and the state actually not um, doing enough uh, for the working and the and the middle classes. Um, in a way, um, when you look at the internal ANC political factional battles, uh, it seems as if others within the ANC itself have told themselves, uh, mm. let it burn. If I can have it, no one is actually going to have it. And that seems to be, the, scary, the, the, that's mm. what scares me the most. Uh, because part mm. of uh, when, uh, when KZN was burning, you had people within the ANC that were cheering, that were praising what was happening. So they, are, they, they serve their own selfish interests and do not actually have the interests of the country at heart. It is about staying out of jail or continuing to uh, exploit uh, 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 the state uh, for their own self-enrichment, for tenders, etc., etc. It has never been about the interests of South Africa in general. If we are to look at our history um, um, in the past few years and since 1994, it is all, it has always been about selfish individual interests within the ANC of a number of leaders within that party. Sabella, I thought my description was depressing. Tolo made it worse by saying not only are these guys seemingly filled with hubris about the conditions, but that many of them have a weird kind of scorched earth policy mentality when riots break out. Ah, and I mean, look, uh, I think, you know, one thing that I think we're very far from as, 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 as a country is serious. Um, you won't anytime soon see a protester in the middle of, uh, President Ramaphosa's you no know, bedroom, um, carrying his boxes or anything like that. But I think that, um, we are, <laughs> we are at, you know, um, a point in this country where be concomitant action. Sorry, Savela. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, I think I, I think for me, part of it is that right. Um, it will be different here, and I think we're starting to see a little bit of it um, in the sort of lawlessness. Um, you know that one is seeing in the country. I mean, I'll remind you um, about you know the the fight in Kabeha, um where. Um, you know, the Somalian shop owners, yes. um, you know, basically got tired of whatever incessant bullying was happening there between them and the taxis. Um, and they said these taxis are light. You saw video footage, um, of these people carrying, um, automatic rifles, um, that we can only probably, you know, uh, imagine that are, are not legal in any way. You know, you've got, <clears throat> Um, another incident similar to this that happened, um, in the Eastern Cape near Queenstown, 
where these Somali shop owners abducted. And I think they even, you know, killed one of these three boys that had um, broken into or attacked their shops. Um, then you've got people that are walking into taverns this weekend and just fire, firing indiscriminately and killing people. Uh, yeah. And for me, Absolutely. this then speaks to sort of these pockets that are going to mushroom, these pockets of lawlessness. I've not even touched on Operation Tutula, um, you know, and, 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 and how they sort of work up people who clearly are left to their own devices and feel that they've got no other way out of it. Um, then, you know, you take all of that and then you take the economic situation. I mean, I was reading such a harrowing story in the city press, um, a lady who works as a domestic worker, um, earning 2,000 rand and spending 1,800 rand of that on transport. Um, she now sees that it's a year for her to actually resign and sit at home um, instead of, you know, trying to make do with 200 rand every month. Um, you know, that's the sort of desperation that you've got and the sort of no way out that people are not seeing, you know. Um, and then you've got these pockets of, of, of violence that are flaring up. And I think what's, what's going to happen with young people, because once again, ANC leaders um, are flaunting ill-gotten gains on social media. Um, they are everywhere at clubs buying expensive liquor. They're buying expensive cars. They're wearing clothes that these young people with no hope um, aspire to. And all these young people see are these arrogant old men whose only, who, the only thing that they had to do to access this wealth and this power and this influence is to simply have, you know, the guts, um, in Kosovo would call it this being, you know, the guy just has, you know, the goal to actually, um, go and steal a tender, um, because they know that nothing will happen and people see see these things and I think young people the more and more they see these things they do Sabelo I want you to finish the thought I just wanted to add something in, in brackets exactly to your point the other article that made me shake my head in the Sunday Times this weekend is how the so called Hulis looter when he was asked what he does for a living during the bail application he says and I quote I tender <laughs> nothing follows the rest of the center. Tendering is now apparently a thing in itself. Yes, yes. And I always say this to people like, you know, these people are not caterers. Um, they don't own security companies, you know, they, they tender. What's your occupation? I'm a tender. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which means I will do anything. But that goes to your point about what's being role modeled by the ill fitting once wearing ill-gotten yeah. And I think this is where the youth are going to go in South Africa, you see, because I think, you know, we will wait, I think, till kingdom come if we think that we'll have an uprising similar to the Arab Spring, for instance, um, where, you know, people were galvanized under one banner because South Africa is, number one, so divided. Um, secondly, you know, we each are in our own pockets. I mean, it's it's one of the biggest fears I have if you look at Operation Tutula, is that what happens once all of these people that are seen as illegal foreigners are no longer in South Africa? Um, who's to say someone from Johannesburg will say, I don't want any Kosa-speaking people here because you're taking exactly. opportunities that you've left in the Eastern Cape, you know? That's the fear that I've got. And I think with the sort of, if you take that and you take um, the fact that we don't have any intelligence to speak of and we don't have any law enforcement to speak of. Those things are so easy to sort of ferment in informal settlements. Absolutely. Um, far from, you know, the areas where we walk and shop, but they will reach us. Um, because whenever these people look up, they see that, you know, there they are, um, living the life that we also ought to be living. Yeah, absolutely. At Tasha's morning side at all. Um, so, 
I think that's a not so wonderful but importantly depressing note to end on. I know what many of our listeners and readers of the Sunday Times, of your work in the Sunday Times, are thinking, listening to this podcast. What now, guys? Should I dust off my ticket and go to Perth? Go and pull some pints in Wimbledon, in London, perhaps, or in Earl's Court, join other, quote-unquote, sephers abroad? Or should I buy a copy of Manifesto and join uh, Songhezo Zibi in trying to fight outside of the main party political system? With your permission, I will give us homework to do part two, which is a forward-looking discussion that we should have. What we have done in the last 40 minutes or so is to give a detailed, textured, but depressing analysis of the conditions currently. But it raises a question which our readers rightly obsessed about because they have a stake in this country. How do we respond to the diagnosis that the three of us have put on the table? I want to thank you for being part of the discussion today, Sabelo and Tanutolo, and I will, with greater time in advance, ask that perhaps next week, in a second part, we have a conversation flowing from this one that poses the question, how collectively do we respond to these systemic and institutional crises? Thanks so much for coming. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.